Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, February 15th, 2018. I'm your host, Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. It's been yet another week of chaos at the White House, with controversy surrounding former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter and his security clearance going into its 10th day. And John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff known for his steady hand and for bringing some semblance of calm to this chaotic administration, has been right in the middle of it. We'll discuss why that is and what's to come for Kelly. We'll also have Politico polling guru Steve Shepard join us to talk about some surprising recent polling results for President Trump. Before we get started, a reminder to our listeners. Subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want your feedback. And you can also email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Now let's welcome two of my favorite reporters, our White House team, Eliana Johnson and Nancy Cook. Hey, Eliana. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's kick off segment number one with our first data point, 40. That's the number of minutes White House Chief of Staff John Kelly reportedly told staff it took between when he was briefed on the abuse allegations against former Staff Secretary Rob Porter and when Porter resigned. Eliana, can you give us a little TikTok about how this all unfolded and how things got to where they are now? That's an interesting question because I think the TikTok is what everybody has been wanting or a timeline <laughs> and we've gotten a bunch of conflicting uh, timelines. So Kelly – told his White House colleagues that he was fully briefed on the allegations against Rob Porter and 40 minutes later he was gone. Um, This became very problematic for Kelly because his colleagues, the White House staffers assembled in that room, felt that uh, Kelly wasn't being honest with them, A, and that by giving them an account that conflicted with their understanding of events, he was sort of tacitly prodding them to mislead other people about what had happened. Um, I think that's important because as one White House aide said to me, you know, um, we have a president who often doesn't tell the truth. But uh, until this point, Kelly's word had really been taken as gold. Nobody had ever really doubted John Kelly when he said something. And people really began to doubt whether he was telling the truth about things. And I think that was the beginning of a sort of crisis of confidence within the White House about John Kelly. So that account uh, became problematic and people began to wonder both within the White House and in the news media, uh, what John Kelly knew about the allegations against Rob Porter and and when he knew them. I think the term fully briefed also came under scrutiny. Um, did he know partially about these allegations and when did he know it? Um, and I, I have to say, I think we still don't know the answer to these questions. Um, my reporting indicates that Kelly was aware in November 
that there was a protective order that had been issued against Porter. I think Porter was able to explain that away. And it's so conflicted with the image that many of Porter's White House colleagues had against him. But Kelly also knew that Porter was operating on an interim security clearance and that he was unlikely ever to receive a permanent clearance. So very senior members of the White House staff, uh, Don McGahn, John Kelly, Joe Hagan, were aware that there was something in Rob Porter's background related to allegations of domestic abuse that was going to keep him from receiving a full security clearance. Um, What transpired between November and February when these allegations burst into the open remains unclear. But I think many people in the White House are sitting uncomfortably with the feeling that the White House only acted um, because they got caught. But there also seems like a personal dimension here, meaning uh, the criticism from from unnamed sources within the White House has seemed unusually personal, uh, almost a higher level of backstabbing than than we've be, uh, become accustomed to in the White House. And I guess in particular, I'm uh, referring to the, the, the blind quote that, that appeared in lots of accounts calling him a big fat liar from within the White House. Uh, Nancy, what, why, why is the, the criticism so personal and, and so sharp? Yeah, I think the criticism has been very personal because people have come to view Kelly as someone who brought uh, a much a greater sense of calm to the White House. I think the last few days have made people feel very rudderless. It has reminded people of the early days of the Trump White House when Reince Priebus was the chief of staff. Um, and people feel like, you know, their leader, who a lot of people call chief, you know, they just call Kelly chief. That's sort of their nickname for him. They feel like they can't really trust him. And also they just feel like demoralized. Uh, they're not sure when this scandal will end. That's what I've heard. Uh a lot of people I talk to uh, want to get out. They want to get new jobs immediately. Um, they're just they they don't want to be tainted by the administration. This is what I heard from people over the last few days. Um, and so there's just like an enormous amount of stress and extremely low morale. And it's so interesting to me that you know this is a story not even about a cabinet secretary. This is a story about a staffer. But it has, uh, for some reason, really brought this White House to its knees over the past week, I think because it raises a lot of questions about sort of also personal judgment, like process stuff in terms of like how are they doing on the clearances, who knew what when, people feel like they're being lied to, uh, you know, the communication strategy is terrible, people have questions about the White House lawyers. And so it's like, although this is a single story about a staffer, and domestic abuse allegations against him, it has ballooned into this whole other thing that took all of these other threads and questions that people had about the Trump White House and has just laid it bare. And I would say, you know, although the last six weeks have had tons of crises, you know, there was the Fire and Fury book and the uh, Steve Bannon sort of being ousted from the Trump orbit, this has really felt like much more significant and heavy uh, to the people that I've talked to in the White House. Well, it would have to be because we've gotten almost no oxygen for a story that would have been a, an absolute bombshell in the past, which is uh, the president's personal lawyer paying off the uh, porn star. But let me get back to Kelly for a second. So is Kelly's leadership uh, or, or does the scandal have a long-term impact on Kelly's leadership or his relationship with Trump? Is his job in jeopardy? All of my reporting – and I have three sources on this. One is – a uh, Republican senator. The other is somebody who talks to the president regularly. And the third is a senior administration official. So I think it's a pretty uh, diverse array of, of sources say 
The president is not about to fire John Kelly. Um, That being said, I do think that there are long-term implications for Kelly here in that he has sort of lost his luster. We saw that begin to happen um, during the Frederica Wilson episode when he went out and attacked the Democratic member of Congress over her attacks on the president about the way he spoke to a Gold Star family. But that was a somewhat partisan issue. I think Republicans were inclined to forgive him. Um, and But I think now we're seeing John Kelly come under attack from his colleagues on the inside. And that really hasn't happened before. I think for Trump, um, he's somebody who those two guys were are able to yell and curse at each other. That's a relationship that he certainly didn't have with Reince Priebus. Um, and he is attracted to and sort of uh, respects and fears these guys with uh, a military background. And um, I, I think for Trump, Kelly may have lost his luster and it's going to be more difficult for him to regain um, the sort of real respect that that he had uh, up to this point. Well, I also think, you know, Trump has this whole kitchen cabinet of people that he talks to and some are, you know, uh, wealthy businessmen, some are former campaign officials. Uh, you know, lately I've been told he's been talking to the mooch a lot again. Uh, you know, nobody ever really goes away in the Trump orbit. I feel like people come back. But I also feel like some faction of those, that kitchen cabinet lately has also Uh, You know, they didn't like Kelly. Some of them didn't like Kelly because he restricted their access to the Oval Office or tried to control Trump's phone calls. And they are also really uh, taking this opportunity to knife Kelly while he's down. And I feel like that, you know, creates a certain amount of pressure, too, if you have low morale among the staff people internally in the White House who feel like they can't really trust Kelly. Plus, you have some portion of the people that Trump calls at night on the weekends who also have it out for Kelly and see this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, cut him down. I think that they're I think he's going to survive for now, but I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure. And someone said to me yesterday, you know, this Rob Porter story has gone on for so long. Uh, you know, the air of it has to be let out somehow. And either there's going to be a news event that will overshadow it you know, maybe this terrible shooting at the Florida I actually school two, overshadows it's that. It's as terrible as it sounds. Yeah. And, I, and I have to say, like, I, the, the two White House aides who said this to me were not saying it in, in a cold-hearted way. Mm-hmm. But they said, you know, I do wonder if this, this Florida shooting will sort of bury the Porter scandal. And they weren't saying it in, in a hopeful way. Like, I want to make that clear. But I do wonder if that mm-hmm. will happen, though. I think NBC's report that 131 mm-hmm. West Wing aides are operating on interim clearances may keep the story going. But I, I, I had heard the same thing. Right. But how is that even possible? That I saw that report too. How is it even possible that so many people could be operating on interim clearance? And how does Porter get this far and handle so much sensitive material? How – how, how is that possible? Well, I want to also make clear, like that uh, report that that NBC story was just out of the executive office of the president. That does not include the political appointees at agencies. And I've been told that the number of sort of people at agencies who also don't have clearance is like over 100. Oh, great. Some, some sunshine. So you're saying even <laughs> much worse. Right. I think that it's like broader. I mean, for the purposes of that story, it's mostly like about people right in the White House who don't have clearance. But I think that the problem of clearance is actually throughout the administration with political appointees. Um, But just back to your question about like 
how did this happen with Porter? I think that it goes back to stories that we were writing during the transition about the personnel problems. There was no vetting. A lot of people didn't want to join the Trump administration. And so Porter comes along. You know, he's out of central casting, as Trump likes to say. He went to Harvard undergrad. He went to Harvard Law. He's a Rhodes Scholar. You know, he's tall. He's like handsome in this conventional way. Um, And I think that people uh, thought that he was professional. He didn't escalate situations in the White House. And uh, they have such a personnel problem of attracting Uh, qualified people to this White House, and I think we'll have even greater problems down the road in this, that I feel like, I mean, I don't know exactly what happened. This is this part is conjecture. But it seems to me like one potential explanation is that, you know, maybe Kelly and Hagan and Don McGahn didn't want to raise all the red flags on this because they would lose a very uh, core member of the White House team who a lot of people in the White House really liked. I have to say, so I, I And I wrote that I think wishful thinking here about somebody who was competent and well-liked uh, won out or dominated the process over uncomfortable facts about somebody who was competent and well-liked. However, in the wake of this, I've heard from so many people, at Bush administration officials, um, you know, former Supreme Court clerks who had been colleagues of Porter's, who said they were absolutely shocked by this. So I I don't think it was – it wasn't just the White House. It was a lot of people who knew this person. And one one former White House staffer said to me that it reminded him of a – of somebody in the Bush administration who – you know, many people had worked with. This is so grisly, but I I do think it it – illuminates the extent to which people were shocked by this. But there was somebody who had served in the Bush administration um, Department of Commerce who um, went on to murder his own child um, and his wife and then kill himself. And he said, this is how you know shocking this was to people, that somebody you knew could have behaved this way and who didn't present himself this, this way at work. So, you know, it really is a sort of human drama that for, – for people who knew this person. OK. But even if you stipulate that this was an anomalous situation, this – we're now going on roughly, what, three years of the, the, the Trump show, meaning from the time he got, came down the escalator at Trump Tower to, you know, a year into his uh, his White House tenure. And the common denominator has always been uh, – terrible personnel problems and chaos uh, surrounding his personnel, whether it's bad hires, uh, infighting among staff, the raw, you know, poor vetting, all of it. Is there any reason to think that this is going to change? Will will anything change as a result of this latest uh, scandal? Well, I think they'll be under greater pressure to figure out the security clearance issue. And I think they'll be under greater pressure to vet people. I think they're going to face a bigger challenge in that Uh, I think this has turned off. I I think people will potentially leave over this or leave perhaps sooner. And then they're going to face a huge recruitment problem. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to go into this administration at all. I I feel like Republicans that I talk to around town, like this is not an attractive job for people. Like maybe if they – maybe if their boss retires from the Hill and there's like no one else, no place else they'll work. But – you know, this is going to be like a huge problem, just a numbers game in the White House staffing it. Okay, uh, we're running out of time on this segment. So let me ask you a quick question, Nancy, about a story you wrote that I liked a lot this week. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating. You wrote about uh, another personnel issue, a, uh, a White House staffer named Michael Roman. Tell us about that story and who he is. Sure. Well, I just um, 
you know, he's just an interesting character. He uh, works in the White House Counsel's Office, and he is a former uh, operative for the Koch Network where he ran this 25-person oppo research team. And before that, uh, you know, he worked on three presidential campaigns and worked for Chris Christie's reelect campaign. Anyhow, he's just a bit unusual because he is a non-lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office, which they've had before, but not at this level. And nobody really knows what he's doing. And he's just raised a lot of questions among uh, you know, folks close to the White House, former administration officials, because no one has a clear sense of what he's doing. And he has this background in oppo research. And he's not a lawyer working in the White House counsel's office. So the story just raised the question of like, who is this Mike Roman guy? And what's he doing? And, you know, maybe he's doing something weird. But the other explanation could be, there's a lot of people who worked on the campaign as he did, who, you know, ended up getting these jobs in the White House, which were sort of strange fits or in strange corners of the White House just because they didn't know where to place people. But I think it's interesting that no one could give me an answer on what he did. And he's a special assistant to the president making $115,000 a year. So we'll we'll keep watching it. (laughs) Well, I'll be curious to see uh, when we sit down in the studio next week whether we're talking about the Porter controversy and White House personnel again or whether we've actually moved on and there's something, you know, more substantive or – or something different to talk about. But for now, we'll just move on to segment two. Let's welcome Politico's chief polling analyst, Steve Shepard. Hey, Steve. Hi. Steve, i got to be honest. I almost exercised host prerogative this week because of – and blackballed you from the show because of your recent comments about Philadelphia and the Eagles on Twitter. But I, then I, <laughs> at the end of the day, I decided I, I didn't want to deny uh, our listeners your your pearls of wisdom. You guys won. You you have every prerogative you, you want. Thank you for acknowledging that. So our second data point today, 47, that's the percentage of voters who approve of the job Trump is doing as president, according to a new Politico morning consult poll. And we should note that that percentage is equal to the percentage that disapprove. So it's 47, 47, according to our new poll. Steve, why are these new poll findings significant? Well, it's the first time we've had uh, the president's approval rating at parity uh, since late uh, last April. Uh, he's been underwater every week we've done this survey since um, since last April. So that's that's really 10 months, nearly 10 months uh, underwater. Look, if you look at the breadth of public polling that's been out there since the new year, he ha- he his standing has recovered somewhat. Uh, most of the other polls don't show him at parity between approval and disapproval, but they do show a significant uptick in his approval ratings. And if you're looking at uh, how he can sell some of his legislative initiatives, whether it's things that he's accomplished uh, on taxes or or some of the things they're hoping to accomplish on immigration and infrastructure, or whether it's his political standing going into the 2018 midterm elections, it certainly helps uh, that his popularity has improved to some degree. Now, I'll say this, 47 uh, percent, his best poll has him uh, tied approval, disapproval. Most polls have still more uh, uh, more voters and Americans disapprove of his job performance. That's not a good place to be, uh, but it's a better place than he was uh, if we were going back, say, two months. But can you put this in con- some context? I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that have been accustomed to reading stories the entire first year of the presidency. This president is at historic lows, historic low popularity, favorability, uh, approval ratings, what, however you measure it. He has been uh, an outlier and a historic low. How is it possible that uh, he would be closing the gap right now? Well, uh, look, you know, these things are, are fluid. 
and uh, as we saw on election day when in, in 2016 when he was elected with 46 percent of the national vote despite having a favorable rating in the 30s, uh, he was able to bring some folks who who while it may seem and, and for a lot of our listeners uh, who may be dead set either for or against him, there are some Americans who are really looking at to, to see how things uh, were going, who maybe were willing to give him a chance whether they voted for him or not, but were unhappy and dissatisfied with the way the first year went. Some of those folks appear to have moved into the other to the other column. And, and I will say that that consolidation appears to mostly have occurred with Republicans. He's back up over 80 percent, close to 90 percent in some surveys among Republicans. When he's fallen into the 30s, below 40 percent, it's mostly been bleeding Republicans uh, who've moved either into the disapprove or the don't know column. Uh, that That's recovered somewhat now. And how about with independents? Independence, we have uh, him 10 points underwater with independence, 39% approve, 49% disapprove. Uh, that's pretty consistent with what we've seen. Um, now, look, how people define themselves is also fluid. Uh, one thing we've noticed in the breadth of public polling over the course of 2017 is that uh, the share of re- people who identify as Republicans has ticked down a point or two. I think there are a lot of traditional Republicans who looked at at President Trump and looked at how the Republican Party had changed under his leadership and who were starting to identify themselves then as independents. So these things are not set in stone, even again, if our politically engaged listeners might be uh, more firmly in one party or another. Uh, for a lot of Americans, party ID, just as perceptions of, of leadership, uh, is fluid. Isn't it also possible, though, that it could be a reflection of a dead cat bounce in, to some degree? I think it's certainly possible uh, for a president who'd only been in office for a year. Uh, we, you mentioned those historic lows. We've never seen uh, uh, perceptions that poor for a new president. You know, it takes sometimes years and years. Um, you know, George W. Bush dropped under 30 percent at his lowest point uh, in in 2007 and 2008 uh, in the waning years of his presidency. But there was a fatigue factor. There was the cratering economy. There was the uh, Iraq war. There was uh, still people having trouble getting over the response to Hurricane Katrina. All the things that added up over time. We'd look never at now. <laughs> and look at him now. We, we, we've seen some of the, the polls around uh, uh, that have been released around President's Day. I saw one from uh, the University of Virginia Institute of Politics and George W. Bush has reasonably good approval ratings, including among uh, Democrats, self-identified Democrats. Um, Thanks, Donald Trump. <laughs> it usually takes, though, time for these things to pile up uh, to affect the perceptions of, of the president. And that's not what we saw over the first year. So to, to answer your question, I think that may be part of it. Yeah. And how, how much of this is being driven by uh, perception of tax cuts? It, it strikes me, and this is just my own wild guess, that – uh, they are the numbers are turning around when it comes to public perceptions of the tax cuts. That's what we've seen too. Uh, we're about to go into the just to give our listeners a window into into what we do. We're about to go into the field now. We're recording this on Thursday, the fifteenth. Uh, we're halfway through in the month of February. We're going to go into the field and ask voters in our next poll uh, if they're getting more money in their paychecks. Um, and it's possible that. Uh, the, we've seen in other polls, a Fox News poll this week, I believe, had uh, approval for the tax law equal to disapproval. We've seen most polls had showed it, particularly up in the in the debate phase, uh, had showed most uh, Americans oppose the, the measure. So uh, we are seeing a, some somewhat of a recovery here, and, and it's interesting to see as people start getting paid with these new withholding tables, if maybe the the law will get even more popular, or maybe they've just consolidated Republicans and it's going to stay. 
a split issue, much like we saw with uh, major legislative initiatives during the Obama administration, like Obamacare. I can imagine that right now someone is, you know, hammering out a tweet and an enraged tweet about how Nerdcast is filled with hacks and you know we're in Trump's pocket. Uh, but the Democratic polls show this too, right? I mean, the the, the uptick is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. Democratic super PAC coming out this week, uh, cautioning Democrats that. Uh, the law, tax law, is not as unpopular as it once was, cautioning uh, that the party was risking ceding ground on economic issues where in the first year of the Trump administration, Trump presidency, uh, that they had reclaimed some of that advantage. Now, the the other side of this coin for those people who are hammering out those tweets is some of the structural things just because Trump's approval is even just because the generic ballot in our new poll is even doesn't mean that some of these structural advantages that Democrats have had over the past year have been erased. Um, just just as we're recording this on Thursday, there's a new Monmouth University poll out in that special congressional election in Western Pennsylvania. It only has the Democrat down by three points. And this is one little nugget that, that stuck out to me from this poll. They asked, are you closely following this election in this district, Pennsylvania, the 18th district in Western PA? 48% of Democrats said they were closely following this election, only 26% of Republicans. Democrats, even if Republicans have seen an uptick in the polls, Democrats are still energized. They will crawl over broken glass to go vote these days. And we saw that in, in Florida this week in that special state legislative election. Um, those advantages, they, those remain even if President Trump's approval rating is up three or four points, even if Republicans standing in the congressional generic ballot is up three or four points. Those structural advantages for Democrats are still there. Well, Eliana and Nancy, uh, is what's the vibe over at the White House? Are they are, are they reveling in this, or are they just so buried right now in the Porter controversy that they can't even uh, wrap their arms around it? I mean, the people I've talked to are like so buried in the Porter controversy, and there um, there is a sense that. They're not talking about tax reform. They're not talking about the economy, which is doing great. Uh, you know, people that I talk to are like, you know, nobody was talking about uh, the budget that President Trump released on Monday this week or the infrastructure plan. You know, there's all these things that are going on on the Hill that like people in the White House can't work on because they're just all consumed on this. And I feel like there's a frustration from people on the Hill and Republicans broadly that, you know, Trump's approval ratings are higher now. Uh, you know, the tax law is starting to take effect. Like, let's stop getting caught in all this scandal and talk about some accomplishments. But the White House keeps getting dragged into these. Look, you could play things. that statement on loop. I know. I feel like I've said it a hundred <laughs> times. But there is like this this ongoing sense of frustration. But uh, I don't know. To take a step back. I don't really think Trump views himself as the head of the Republican Party. And so I don't really think Trump cares all that much about what happens in the 2018 elections because he's not on the ballot. And I'm not sure he completely understands the implications of losing the House and the Senate and what that necessarily means for his agenda. He's like, oh, OK, we'll do infrastructure. That's bipartisan. Um, I don't think I don't think he his mind works in the same way as uh you know, a Barack Obama or a George W. Bush who understood that he really was on the ballot in the midterm elections, that they were a referendum on his leadership and they had an enormous implication about on his ability to advance his agenda. I mean, people are asking, what is this guy's agenda? They uh, they don't really know. Um, what I think is more interesting is that 
John Kelly, the chief of staff, doesn't really care about politics. So I think that has an impact on how much the White House focuses on 2018 and 2020. And that there's not all that much planning in the White House around the 2020 election or on the president's reelection. And I think that comes from the top down, in part because Kelly's focus is not on um, getting this president reelected. Now, you know, make of that what you will. Steve, part part of the discussion surrounding the the 2018 midterms uh, is uh, the generic ballot. You know, when we're talking about polling, and that is also, and, and when I say generic ballot, what I'm talking about is that longstanding question asked by pollsters about which party voters would support a congressional election, where you don't mention specific candidate names, you just say, well, would you favor the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate? And part of the discussion we'll have in uh, we're having now about 2018 is that the generic ballot. Uh, is also seeing an uptick in favor of Republicans. Uh, it, does that matter? And is is that a, uh, what does that tell us about the state of the cycle right now? I mean, it tells us roughly the same thing at this point that the president's approval rating tells us. Um, you know, I, one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of decades is while voters used to cross over and support presidential candidates in one party uh, and and with regularity vote for congressional and other. Uh, statewide candidates from the other party, uh, that happens less and less these days. There are fewer ticket splitters uh, out there in the country. And as we've seen the president's approval rating tick up, we've also seen Republicans standing in the generic ballot tick up. Now, as people start to get focused in on these elections in their states, we're going to look at race by race polling to see if there are voters who disapprove of the president who nonetheless are going to support Republicans in their congressional district, in their state Senate race, in their governor's race or 36 governor's races on the ballot this this fall. Um, we'll see if they start splitting their tickets and at least figuratively, even though with the president not on the ticket and voting for Republicans, even if they don't approve of the job that President Trump is doing. Uh, right now, though, it's telling us the same thing, which is that Republicans have come home over the past two months and that happens to coincide. And, you know, it's difficult to causation and correlation are, are not always the, uh, the same thing, but it's it does coincide with uh, the passage of the tax law last year. Well, as, as the polling maven, maybe you can clarify this a little. I've always felt, you know, through, throughout my career reporting on congressional races, that the generic ballot was kind of a, a little bit of a BS measure. In that, uh, it always seems to me that Democrats are ahead on the generic ballot, and then Republicans hold the majority year after year after year. And it feels, it, it almost feels like to get an accurate assessment, uh, Democrat, you know, if, if Democrats are in double digits, that's when I start to take take it seriously. Is Am I way off base here? You're not off base. It's It has to do with the way the maps are drawn. You know, Republicans uh, have a 24-seat majority in the House of Representatives right now, um, despite the fact Democratic congressional candidates won more votes in 2016 than Republicans won. Um, that's nationally. Nationally, yes. it all up. Yeah, okay. Republicans won more seats. Democrats won more votes. Um, so, and, and that's for a number of different reasons. One, um, Republicans controlled the redistricting process in more states at the last redrawing of the congressional lines after the 2010 census. Um, it also has to do with population patterns. There are 90 to 95 percent Democratic districts in this country, particularly in urban areas. There aren't 90 or 95 percent Republican districts. Uh, Republicans voters are distributed more efficiently than Democratic voters. So Democrats, in short, have to win the national House popular vote um, by somewhere between five and 10 points. Most people peg it somewhere in that range, uh, in order to win back control of the House. So when you look at them, in our poll, Republicans have a, have a marginal one-point lead, uh, and the national average is somewhere between six and seven as we record this. 
that's probably the minimum threshold that Democrats need to have a real shot at taking back the House. And in order to feel good about their chances, they probably need to be closer to the 13-point lead they had at its peak in December in the Real Clear Politics average. In our poll, it was 10, was their highest uh, was their greatest lead. That's probably where they need to be to feel real good about taking back control of the House. So to answer your question, yes, they need, they need you, you should take it seriously when they're up close to double digits. Well, we'll leave the polling discussion there for now. Steve, Eliana, Nancy, thanks so much for joining me on Nerdcast this week. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, guys. And thank you to our listeners and our producers, Dave Shaw, Bridget Mulcahy, and Michaela Rodriguez. Thanks also to our researcher, Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator, Bill Cookman. We'll talk to you next week.